session here in the book of Job. Now we're going to be starting in chapter 2 today and as we've seen so far in this book God has not promised his children an easy time in the world and if you're under a trial today just remember God is merciful and he wants to do something good in your life through your trials. It is difficult in trials though to bow under the mighty hand of God. In fact, Job's sufferings brought him to the place where he wished that he had never been born. And yet, in all of his troubles, he never lost his integrity or his reverence for God. And this is the place that we'll begin as we pick up our study in Job chapter 2 and verse 4. Now let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we pray for those around the world today who need to hear your word. May they receive it with great joy. And we ask, Father, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, as we study your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when we left off last time, we were in heaven, in God's court. And Satan was there reporting to the Lord. And you'll recall that the Lord called Satan's particular attention to Job again. He said, look, this man still serves me. You claimed that if I permitted you to take everything away from him, that he would turn his back on me. But he hasn't. He maintains his integrity. What do you got to say about that? Now we read on here, verse 4, chapter 2 of Job. Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. And you know, Satan is accurate about many of us. He sees that there's a little chink in our armor. There is that Achilles heel that we all have. There is that weakness. And when we get right down to the bare bones, we all cave in. But you know, God has said to us that he's not going to permit any temptation to come to us that will defeat us completely. Always, with the temptation, he will make a way of escape for us. And he never lets us bear more than we can stand. We ought to recognize that. I don't know who you are or where you are or how you are. But wherever you are and whatever it is that you're going through right now, God is able to sustain you. And he will never let you bear more than you can handle. That is a great comfort. Now, I don't know what any given day is going to bring forth. It could be a tragedy beyond words, or it could be a delightful day. But whichever it is, God says that he will enable you to get through it. Your armor will stand up. He'll see to that, and that is a wonderful thing to know. And by the way, Satan is a liar. He's a liar here. He says that Job will give anything for his life. And Satan says now, verse 5, However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. All right, now new challenge, new parameters. Before, you remember, Satan was permitted to take Job's family and his possessions, but he wasn't allowed to touch Job. Now he says, 
Well, of course he didn't fall. You didn't let me touch him. So God tells Satan now, all right, well, now you can touch him. You just can't kill him. And now scene five comes before us. Verse seven. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Satan leaves the presence of the Lord now and he afflicts Job with these sore boils all over his body. Verse 8. And he took a pot's herd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Now this is the fifth scene that we have before us. Job had won round one. But we see now that this man is being tested in every department and every area of his life. Satan contended before God that what he had done before was just touching the skin, just scratching the surface. Skin for skin, he said in verse 4. And what Satan is attempting to do now, actually, is break him down. You see, he's lost his finances and he's lost his family. And now his physical body is being attacked. And there is seemingly no human explanation for the trouble of Job. It's not a punishment for any sin. And it's completely senseless without the proper insight. That's the reason why God gives us the explanation at the beginning of the book, so that we'll understand. Now, what was happening to Job was for a lofty and worthy purpose. There was a good and sufficient reason in the eternal counsels of God. And when all the facts are in, all the evidence is considered, God has a purpose in this. It was discipline. You could say it's good for Job. It's like that old joke a father was spanking, spanking his little son Willie. And he said to him, son, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Little Willie says, Yes, but not in the same place. And that's true here, by the way. It's good for Job. But God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And we try to deliver our children from suffering. We try to prevent it. We give them everything that we can afford to make life pleasant for them. And we spoil them, actually. And we've got a spoiled generation today. Now the day came when Job realized that something good was coming out of his experience, but he did not understand that at first at all. And it was good for Job. Now it was for the glory of God also. You see, God's character had been impugned. We didn't even talk about that last time, but just think about that. I think that the creatures in heaven, all of his created intelligences, the sons of God, I think they shuddered when this creature Satan cast this aspersion on God. He said, does Job serve you for nothing? He only serves you because you bless him. In other words, what he said to God was, you are not worthy to be loved. You have to pay Job to love you. He insinuated that God has paid lovers and that he had to bribe Job. And that God is not worth loving just by himself. So what about it? Are we time servers? Are we paid lovers? My friend, God is good. God is merciful. God is gracious. 
we rejoice in his goodness but when we're under fire that's when we reveal our true metal the fire always burns out the dross and testing reveals what's genuine we are to be lights in the world and light is for darkness he puts us in darkness so that the light will shine now God never promised today to any of his children that we would have an easy time on the contrary he promised a rough time to come and that's something by the way that is rather difficult to express there's no pain there will be no gain you might say there has to be the suffering no contest no struggle well then there will be no scepter either it's difficult for us to bow under the terrible and awesome hand of Almighty God that's the reason that Paul could say knowing the terror of the Lord we persuade men now what kind of a trouble did Job have we're told here that he had sore boils and he scraped himself with a pot's herd that is a broken piece of pottery and now you see the scene is going to move now and this last scene takes place on a dump heap outside of an oriental city out where they just dumped everything job's out there now and he picks up a broken piece of pottery and he begins to scrape himself my that must have been terrible and a great many christian doctors have tried to speculate as to exactly what job had some have suggested that it was merely a psychosomatic dermatitis well that just goes to show what becoming a doctor will do for you and what that would be by the way is a skin disease caused by anxiety well I don't think that that's what Job had and this doctor couldn't diagnose him personally anyways so in this case I'm comfortable contradicting a doctor some years ago another doctor diagnosed Job's illness as pellagra which is a vitamin deficiency disease and you can take your choice or you could try to make your own diagnosis if you want but I really hope that you won't mind if I just say that Job had boils sore boils all over his body and some people think that Job had cancer by the way but we can see that Satan is moving in now and he's taking away from Job everything that a man rests upon for dignity in this life Job had lost everything he was covered his whole body was covered with sore boils and now he's out scraping his boils with a broken piece of pottery at a dump heap outside of town which by the way is where the lepers go now what you notice here we are now introduced to job's wife and listen to her now verse 9 then his wife said to him do you still hold fast your integrity and job did retain his in his integrity satan is beating at that though he's beating him down to where he doesn't even want to be called a man and now his wife says do you still hold fast your integrity curse god and die now that's strange advice coming from a wife i should say apparently she wanted to be a widow 
but she sees this suffering that he's going through and this actually was probably meant to be a tender and comforting suggestion but it sure doesn't sound that way this is a suggestion and she says curse god and die now there have been those that take the position you'll note that satan did not remove the wife of job he removed everything else but he leaves his wife alone and why well she wasn't any help to him but she might even be doing the devil's bidding you see verse 10 now chapter 2 of job but he said to her you speak as one of the foolish women speaks shall we indeed accept good from god and not accept adversity in all this job did not sin with his lips this man job up to this point now has maintained his integrity now actually the book of job really begins at this point verse 11 you have here now the integrity of this man attacked and three friends that is three so-called friends of job come to visit now and they attempt to to comfort him and we should get introduced to them now verse 11 now when job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. Now this, I think, is very important to see. First of all, Eliphaz the Temanite, and we're going to get acquainted with all three of these men here. Eliphaz was a grandson of Esau, that is noted in Genesis 36, verses 10 and 11. Then we have Bildad the Shuite, and Shua was a son of Abraham by Keturah. That's the woman he married when Sarah died. And we find that in Genesis 25, 2, by the way. And that puts him, you see, at the time of the patriarchs. And then we have Zophar the Naamathite, and Naamah was in northern Arabia. So now we can locate some of the places and some of the families, and I feel like that puts Job somewhere in that area of the ancient Near East during the time of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now these men come to mourn with Job, and since I'm going to say probably some very ugly things about his friends, I think we should take a little time to say what we can that's good about them. And we have it here in verse 12. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept, and each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Now, these men had heard that their friend Job was in trouble. They didn't dream that it was as severe as it was. These men had probably last seen him in a beautiful home surrounded by children, fine sons and daughters. And they saw the wealth of Job spread out across the landscape. And now they come to visit their friend. They're thinking, well, at least he must be in his home. He must still have a luxurious home. But he's out there at the dump heap of the town where they empty the garbage. And he's scraping himself with an old, broken piece of pottery. He doesn't have anything. 
It's all gone. This poor man, Job. And these friends, they mourned, they wept, they howled. And for seven days, they sat there with him and they didn't say a word. They just sat with Job seven days and seven nights. I would say that they're friends. That is, as far as they know. They're trying to be friendly with him. They sat down with him seven days. And now during this full week, they mourn with him. They sat with him for seven days, but they're in no position to comfort Job. To begin with, they do not understand God. Secondly, they do not understand Job. And third, they do not even understand their own selves. They just merely shake their heads in a knowing manner during these seven days of mourning. There they sit, they shake in their heads. They're mourning for seven days, but that shaking of their heads wasn't very good. And what happens is, Job finally comes under their critical eyes. These men are brilliant men, by the way. They're philosophers, all of them. Men in that day did a great deal of thinking, and for seven days they're all just thinking. And they all come to one conclusion, although they come to it from different directions. And they conclude that Job must be an awful sinner for all these things to happen to him and that God was punishing him, and he had better get his life straightened out. And now that's the conclusion that they make. And they give Job that stare, that glare, that look. Finally, Job can't stand it any longer. They're beginning to shake their heads in an annoying way and giving him that condescending look with that little smirk on their face. It's so irritating. They don't speak, but they're thinking, Mmm, hmm finally comes out, Brother Job. You've been living in sin, and you gave the impression that you were such a pious individual this whole time. And now we know that this has come to you because your sin is out at last. Well, Job can't take it. He could take everything else that happened to him, but he can't take this. And in fact, when the text here says they saw that his pain was very great, the Hebrew manuscript there uses an expression that means the pain produced by his disease was continually increasing. His boils were hurting more and more. And now his friends are giving him this condescending look. Now, my friend, we've seen that this man Job is being made a test case. He's a guinea pig. Satan challenged God, and he said, You've put a hedge around this man. He's got everything, and if you begin to take those things away from him, he'll curse you to, he'll curse you to your face. He casts a slur upon mankind and upon God, a blasphemy. And the intelligences of heaven must have cringed and blushed when they heard this pious creature that God had created, who's now fallen casting this slur upon Almighty God. Now God permitted Satan to get at this man Job, and he began to move into this man's life. And we saw that he began to take one thing after another away from him in order to break him down. And I think that I probably should pause a moment before we get into this third chapter 
so we can grasp all the background of this. The very interesting thing is that you and I today belong to a lost race. It's difficult to think about that you and I are living down here today among a bunch of liars and cheaters and cutthroats and thieves and murderers. And somebody say, well, I'm not like that. I'm afraid that you are. That's the reason that God can't take us to heaven as we are. After all, if God took the whole world to heaven just as it is today, he wouldn't have heaven. He would just have the world all over again. And I don't know about you, but I see no reason to duplicate it. And God apparently sees no reason for it either. Therefore, he's not taking us to heaven as we are. And that's the reason the Lord Jesus had to say to that refined, polished, religious Pharisee, you must be born again. Now, if it's any comfort to any of us, we're all in the same boat. And we talk about normal behavior today. The psychologist is great at that. But how in the world do they arrive at normal behavior? Well, what he does is he plots a chart, a bell graph. And where the majority of people are, that's normal. One end is abnormal, the other end is supernormal, and that's where the few are at either end. But who says the middle is normal? Just because it's more common, I don't think it's normal. We're all in sin today. Now this creature called man is a frail creature, and he's feeble and he's faulty. It's easy to upset the equilibrium of any man. It can happen to any of us. It's easy to depart from the pattern and to tip the scale. And some research has said that one out of every ten people spend time in a mental institution. It's hard for me to believe that that's true, but that's the statistic given to me. Now, God has placed around man certain props to make man stand straight and upright. The book of Ecclesiastes puts it like this in uh, chapter 7, verse 29. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Now, he has clothed men and women today with an armor of protection, a security blanket, if I may. God has given both the godly and the ungodly certain aids. He makes it rain both on the just and the unjust. The ungodly get as much sunshine and air to breathe, and their health can be just as good as those of us who are of Christ today. Now the devil knows that if he can get through to a man and remove the props, strip away every vestige of aid, and tear away his soft blanket of security, then he can upset man, turn him upside down, rearrange his thinking, and brainwash him. And therefore, God has placed around his people a hedge to keep the devil away. But sometimes the devil is permitted to crash the gate, and he will strip a man down to his naked soul. And God permitted the devil to brainwash Job. The book of Job pre presents the problem here, and it states the stripping of a man's soul. But it doesn't state the solution. 
You must go to the New Testament for the real answer that is only alluded to in this book. And we'll go into that. But the Bible is sort of like the geometry book I used in high school. The problems were in the front, and the answers were in the back of that old geometry book. And the Bible is like that too. We get the problem first with some hints of how to solve it. But then we turn to the New Testament to get the real answer. The Old Testament by itself is, in many ways, a very unsatisfactory book. Nothing really is solved. As someone once put it, the Old Testament is the expectation, the New Testament is the realization. Now, as far as we've come in Job so far is this. The devil has been brainwashing Job. He strips Job of every vestige of aid and every covering. And one of the basic needs of man is material substance. An animal is already born with a coat on. You and I, when we're little, somebody has to go and get us a coat. And later, you and I have to buy a coat. and We have to buy food and clothing and shelter. Animals can stand out in the weather and forage for food. Man can't really do that so well. Therefore, man needs to have shelter and barns and flocks and herds, lands, and he needs to have things. He needs to have a home. And we're told in Scripture that he's given us richly all things to enjoy. And God wants man to enjoy the things that he has put in this world. Although the curse of sin is upon us, God has provided for us in many very wonderful ways. Now, physical things can be spiritual blessings. Prosperity is a gift of God, and there's nothing wrong with building bigger barns. The danger lies in leaning upon these things and leaning upon them as if that's all there is to our lives. Our gadgets and our conveniences and our comforts, they actually can create a prison for us. People try to leave and go on vacation out in California, and they sometimes go camping out in the desert. They leave behind all their video games, their TV set, all the gadgets and gizmos in the kitchen. They leave behind their remote control. They take their phone, though, and they say, I want to rough it. Well, what do they mean? Well, they feel like they're in prison. And actually, a Christian needs to be alone to take an inventory. Am I trusting in the things, or am I trusting in God? Now, Job has lost all that he has. He went from prosperity to poverty. And Job was moved, but he was not removed from the foundation. Then the second thing that happened to Job that God permitted the devil to do to him, he took away his loved ones. And you and I need loved ones to prop us up. When we're a little child, a little baby, that's the reason that the Lord makes little babies so cute, so that we'll cuddle them and hug them, and how wonderful it is. And as a child grows up, he looks to his parents for love and sympathy. And when a little boy scrapes his knee, he runs inside and has his mama kiss the scrape. And that doesn't do the scrape a bit of good, but it props the child up, makes him feel better. And then the band-aid goes on. Now, without love and support, a child will develop conflicts and complexes. 
The psychologist, I think, is right about that. As a child grows into the teens and towards adulthood, and it wasn't that long ago for me, I can recall in my teens when I wouldn't listen to my dad or my teachers or anyone. What I think that some people haven't discovered is that God made teenagers that way because he's getting ready to push the little eaglets out of the nest to be on their own. And then one day, love is transferred to someone else. And then it gets transferred to one's own children. Now, Job has lost his children. And there's another thing now that is a factor in the well-being of people, and that is our health. I know some people who have been sidelined by disease or other health problems. And those people probably have learned to trust God in a way that you or I have not learned to trust God. And so the devil took away the health of Job. That was a great blow to him. And to top it off, he took away the love and the sympathy of Job's wife. Now Job's friends have come to mourn with him. And his so-called friends, I should say, they don't turn out to be very friendly to this man and his suffering. And Job finally calls them miserable comforters. We'll see why. Now what else can the devil do to Job? Can you say kicking a man while he is down? The devil keeps on working this man Job so much that Job loses his sense of self-worth and the dignity of his own personality. The Lord Jesus Christ reminded us of our worth when he said, You're more valuable than many sparrows. That's what you're worth. You are a creature for whom Christ died. He loved you so much that he was willing to pay for you with his own blood on the cross. And the devil will try to get you to lose sight of that. He tries to cause us to lose the dignity and the worth of our own personality. And one thing that we should recognize here, that there's a whole lot of things in the Bible that are inspired. Well, it's all inspired, but it's not all true necessarily. I guess that's not the right way to word it, but what I mean is this. The devil was not inspired to tell a lie in the Garden of Eden. But the record that tells us he did lie when he did is what's inspired. Some people think that just because something is in the Bible that that means it's true. No, let's consider context. Let's find out who says it. In the book of Job, we need to be very careful about that. Now this whole section here from chapter 3 through the beginning of chapter 42 is considered poetry in the Hebrew scriptures. A dramatic poem of speeches between Job and his well-meaning friends. And this is a section that I like to call, Everybody's Got an Opinion. Because they all will give their opinions about what's happening to Job. And chapter 3 through the end of chapter 14 we can call round 1. Job will be the first to break this week-long silence with a lament. And he's so depressed now that he starts his first speech by cursing the day of his birth and longing for the day that he'll finally die. In short, Job says, I wish I was never born. Now listen to the first discourse of Job and listen to the heartbreak of this man. I hope it'll give you something to think about. Job chapter 3 verse 1. 
Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which said, A boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Now this is beautiful speech, by the way, very flowery. But when you add it all up, when you boil it down and you strain it out, what Job is saying is this, I wish I hadn't been born. That's what he's saying. And how many times have you said that? Well, I know I've said that. I'm of the opinion, actually, that we've all said that at some point, especially in our younger days. That's when I said it the most. Something disappoints us and we say, well, gosh, I just wish I hadn't been born. Well, that's what Job is saying. He's just saying it in very poetic language. Verse 6, As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those who curse it, let those curse it who curse the day who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light, but have none. And let it not see the breaking of dawn. Because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb, or hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb, and expire? Why did the knees receive me, and why the breasts, that I should suck? You see, this man Job... He's really saying it now, and he's saying it loud and clear. I wish I'd never been born. And interestingly enough, that never solves any of the problems of this life, my friend, to wish you hadn't been born or wishing you could die. Wishing it won't change anything. You can't undo the fact that you were born. It just lets off a lot of steam. And that's what Job is doing. And his friends now, they're not going to be very friendly to him from this point on. Job was in deep pain and despair, and he's finally expressing it. Notice, though, Job is still faithful to God. He still has not cursed God. He cursed the day of his own birth, and he wishes that he had never been born nor even conceived. But he doesn't curse God. He felt like it would have been better not to have lived than to suffer the way that he has suffered. Better never to have wealth than to have it and lose it. Better never to have had children than to have had them and have them all killed. Job just wanted his birthday obliterated from the calendar of human history. And that's where we'll stop for this time. I encourage you to go back and reread chapter 2 and all the way to the end of chapter 3. Uh, that's what we'll be focusing on next time. And uh, I encourage you to do that so that you can review what we've covered and get a preview for next time. And uh, as always, come to your own conclusions. And uh, we'll be covering to the end of Chapter 3 in our next session. So until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. See you later.